The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from the island of Manhattan. And we have three disparate items for you from our columnists around the world for this week's episode. First, European editor Peter Thal Larson returns for a second week running to discuss how some big names in finance and business, including Credit Suisse and steel tycoon Sanjeev Gupta, are suffering collateral damage from the collapse of UK supply chain lender Greensill. After that, I caught up with John Foley in the States to assess the latest move by General Electric to return to its industrial roots by reducing its exposure to financial assets. The company this week said it would merge its aircraft leasing business with Ireland's Aircap, taking a 46% stake in the enlarged company. After that, I hand the mic over to Yuna Galani in Mumbai and Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong to discuss how shifting to working from home could create something of a diversity disaster. According to Katrina, who looked at a handful of studies on the topic, women are likely to embrace flexible work policies offered in the post-COVID-19 new normal, as it were, but if mismanaged, the intended benefits could threaten their prospects for promotion. Give a listen. Welcome back to London, uh, where this week we are once again talking about Greensill, the small and privately owned finance company whose collapse is causing big waves around markets uh, in Europe and further afield. Last week, Neil Lomack and I talked about the business of supply chain finance. This week, we're going to take a look at some of the names, the bigger names that are getting dragged into the green cell mess. Names you would recognize like SoftBank, the Japanese company, Credit Suisse, and a steel tycoon called Sanjeev Gupta. Joined by Liam Proud, a columnist in London, and George Hay, Breaking News editor, who is currently in Nottingham. Um, guys, welcome. Thank you both. Liam, maybe you could just start by reminding us um, what is Greensill and what does it do? Sure thing. So Greensill um, is was it's it's insolvent now is the is the key headline. But it was um, a very fast growing provider of this thing called supply chain finance. And supply chain finance is a way that um, big companies, um, little companies can kind of get cash either sooner or later than they might otherwise get it by using a kind of intermediary. Greensill was um, one of the bigger intermediaries. It was It's quite a young company. It was founded in 2011 um, and it was heavily backed by SoftBank. And you've been looking this week at uh, particularly at um, uh, its relationship with Credit Suisse and um, uh, and kind of some of the, the complexities of things that are going on there. Maybe just tell us a bit about the different ways in which Greensill was connected to, to Credit Suisse. Yeah, it's fascinating. As you said, it really is one of those stories that you just can't believe the amount of big names in finance that are sort of connected to it. Um, and as you said, one of them is Credit Suisse. Now, what's interesting about the Credit Suisse connection is they're not just connected in a very kind of straightforward way. Um, I mean, the thing to understand about Credit Suisse is they have this model where they have a big wealth management, private banking business for rich people. Then they have investment banking and asset management. And the, the game has always been to try and get these very different businesses working together. So the absolute dream Credit Suisse client is someone who is a wealthy entrepreneur um, with a big company under their control. And they might need investment banking services, private banking services, um, and various other things. Now, this was exactly the way to describe Lex Greensill, who was the founder of Greensill. He named the company after himself, obviously. And 
essentially, you know, when it works, it works for Credit Suisse. It means they get more business because they're able to refer their own services to themselves effectively. You know, the investment bankers can say, well, hey, you know, who's doing your, um, you know, financing against your equity stakes? Maybe you need some cash flow. Well, private bankers can help you with that and vice versa. But when it goes badly, it has this kind of ratchet effect where all of the divisions kind of get hit at the same time. And we're seeing something similar with Credit Suisse at the moment where the corporate bankers are made a loan to the company Greensill, which now looks like it might be in trouble given that Greensill is um, insolvent. And the asset management business was heavily involved in Greensill. It was sending Greensill's products onto its own investors. Now Credit Suisse might have to stand behind any losses there. Um, and that's before we even mention any problems with Lex Greensill himself, which we don't have any detail on at all, but it's just another kind of coder in all this. Yeah, so he really seems to have got his uh, his tentacles in. I mean, very specifically, uh, I mean, the, the, the big sort of number that's come up is 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 this these funds that Credit Suisse was running, sort of, which were basically getting money from investors and and then buying uh, some of the supply chain finance assets that that Greensill was originating. And that's like ten billion dollars. Um, and actually, Credit Suisse's decision to freeze those funds last week was kind of what precipitated the collapse. Um, so you've been trying to run some numbers on 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 kind of how that how that might unravel. What 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 have you found out? Absolutely. So I mean, it's important to state how kind of uncertain all this is at the moment. Um, the big moving piece is the fact that these assets in these funds, which were originated by Greensill, the deals were struck by Greensill, but then they were sent into the fund where they're essentially held by um, clients of the Credit Suisse asset management business. These assets are largely insured. Now, the, the absolute big question is to what extent will those insurance policies pay out? There's the Financial Times reported this morning that Tokyo Marine, which is one of the big insurers, um, is, is reviewing those contracts. So that's a kind of major caveat here. But having said that, I mean, you know, if you just strip out the insured stuff provisionally and say, well, how much of this stuff could potentially go bad? Um, you're left with this one fund. There are four funds. Um, three of them are mostly insured. And it's the high income fund, the high income supply chain fund has about 1.8 billion of assets. Now, about 400 million of that is junk rated. So it's kind of riskier. Um, so I reckon that's a kind of a good way to estimate what Credit Suisse's losses would be if it did indeed decide to stand behind those losses rather than inflict them on its clients. So that doesn't, I mean, it sounds obviously, it's 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 a lot of money for you and me, but I mean, uh, banks like Credit Suisse are paying fines and, and kind of taking write-downs on things all the time. I mean, it doesn't feel like it's sort of existential from them on that level, but, but what's the sort of the broader knock-on effect for their whole business model that you were talking about before? It's interesting because, as you said, you know, the 400 million, you know, maybe they lose some of the loan as well. Maybe it goes up to 500 million. You know, it's not it's not going to cause a serious problem for Credit Suisse. But the interesting thing is just thematically how this links into the company's strategy at the moment. Thomas Gottstein, who's the relatively new CEO, is going for growth. That's what his strategy is based around. You hear in the banking world a lot about cost cuts and mergers, and it's very defensive. He, he talks in the opposite kind of um, language. He talks about growth. Now, the way they're going to get growth is by going after, you know, wealthy clients in Asia and getting all their businesses working in tandem and being aggressive, getting on deals, you know, all these things. That 
sounds a lot like what happened uh, in this situation, right? Where you're aggressively yeah. trying to get deal, deals with entrepreneurs who also have big equity stakes in companies. So I think that would be the thing that would make me feel a bit uncomfortable as a Credit Suisse investor is how many more banana skins are out there. And if yeah. anyone's going to fall on them, it, Credit Suisse will find those banana skins. Well, so, yeah, so, so, so Godstein has sort of proved the model worked, but not in the way that uh, that he intended. Um, really interesting. Quite. Thanks, Liam. So, so then turning to George, um, George Hay, uh, you've been looking at kind of the, the company that was on the other side of Green, green Seal's business uh, um, uh, and, and the companies run by or companies, we should say, run by this tycoon Sanjeev Gupta, who was a big, who's heavily dependent on Green Seal financing. Um, what, what, what's, what's the big question that's coming out of that now? Uh, right. So, I mean, as you say, um, Sanjeev Gupta's um, company or group of companies called GFG Alliance and the um, the, the most visible part of that is this thing called the Liberty Steel Group, which is one of the companies. Um, now, that has just been using a um, huge amount of uh, this supply chain finance as suggestions that it's kind of uh, green sales exposure is up to $5 billion um, to GFG. And um, uh, so basically, you know, that's a lot, of, <laughs> that's quite a lot of money. And um, uh, if Greensill is no longer there or um, out of the picture, then um, it implies that uh, Liberty Steel and GFG have a problem. Um, to put it mildly, um, now GFG said yesterday that they've got adequate financing um, in place for their current needs, um, but that's not what the um, that's not what um, the uh, uh, Greensill lawyers were saying. So the, the, the big question really is what. Um, what happens if it does get into um, real difficulties and kind of you, falls over? Right, and these are these are basically these are like heavy industry steel companies and so forth, which employ yeah. I mean, Liberty Steel is obviously is, is is a steel, but the GFG does other things other than steel, but it's all that kind of thing. Yeah, but but this is where it sort of becomes political potentially, right? I mean, that's sort of the angle that you've been looking at is basically yeah, exactly. So, so it gets into trouble. Does he need to be bailed out, and will politicians feel compelled to somehow? get involved in this? Well, you'd kind of assume that um, the, the answer to that would be yes, and um, they would feel like they have to because, um, I mean, uh, Liberty Steel employs thousands and thousands of people around, but, around the world, but there are um, uh, around 5,000 employees in the UK. And um, uh, a lot of those sites in where where these people work are a long way from London, and one of Boris Johnson's UK Prime Minister's big things is to level up and kind of uh, uh, reduce the um, income dis disparity gap between London and everywhere else in the UK. Um, so it and add in the fact that we're right in the middle of COVID and um, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of um, uh, jobs are kind of on the line. It would be a really bad time. It would be a bit really bad look uh, for him to not bail out these these companies. But um, the, the, the trouble is, uh, it's the, the 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 real the real question really is that that uh, the UK steel sector is pretty structurally uncompetitive compared to uh, most of its uh, uh, most of the places in Europe and uh, other competitors around the world. And um, that's largely to do with kind of high energy costs and um, various yeah. other structural things. And um, the UK also 
import already imports about 60% of its steel needs anyway. So um, there's a real question about is and, and I suppose Liberty is only the third biggest um, steel player in the UK anyway. So there's a real question about whether you should actually whether you should do this. And if the UK does end up doing it, then um, it's yeah. not obvious what their exit route would be. Yeah, so uh, so it becomes a becomes a political conundrum as well as a financial one. Um, uh, that's great. Thank you, George, for that, and also Liam for your explanations. I mean, I think we're going to keep following this story. I mean, the political conundrums keep coming. I mean, apart from uh, the question of whether this GFG alliance might need some help, obviously David Cameron, the former British Prime Minister, is also an advisor to Green Sales, so he's been dragged into this. And then there are other companies that are also uh, potentially on the hook here, uh, including SoftBank, the Japanese group. So I think this whole uh, story is going gonna, is gonna to rumble on for quite some time, um, and we are going to keep track of it. So General Electric's light bulb moment is still far away, according to John Foley. John, you wrote a piece uh, this week looking at General Electric's plan to merge its aircraft leasing business with Aircap of Ireland. This is a sort of step in what definancializing the, the conglomerate and moving back towards in, a, in what you say, or moving towards, uh, I guess, back to the future towards uh, an era where the conglomerate does one thing. It makes complex, expensive machinery for business customers. So fill us in a little bit on this deal, this aircraft deal. So, so G, obviously, it's an American icon. It was at one point the biggest company in the world, and it got buried under all of this stuff that was not really what it was good at. And what it was good at was, as you say, making big, complex machines for companies and still does a bit of that. It makes turbines for power stations and it makes aircraft engine and it makes, you know, MRI machines for hospitals. But it's still got all this financial baggage. So what they've done now is they've taken a big bunch of aircraft leasing operations and they've shoved them into a joint venture with a company called Aircap, which is an Irish aircraft leasing business. So basically GE manages to just do one thing less than it was doing before and get a bit closer to the idea of just making stuff. And how um, big, a, let's, how big a chunk is this? I mean, if you look at the, the grand scheme of whether debt assets and liabilities at General Electric, what, what are the size of the assets that they're- So it's about $34 billion dollars of assets comes off GE's balance sheet, but it doesn't And this really is GE Capital together. or GE's balance sheet? This I mean, is GE Capital, which okay. is kind of, you know, it's the same, it's kind of the same thing, but GE Capital was two things really. It was aircraft leasing and it was this bizarre life insurance, but a kind of old age insurance business. And now they've got the aircraft leasing off the books. They're instead going to own just under half of the new enlarged company, Aircap. They've still got the insurance business, which is a real problem because that's the one that occasionally springs these nasty surprises and causes big write downs. But they're kind of folding that into GE. It's plain old GE. So right. GE capital is effectively no more after this. And it's all just going to be one company called GE, which makes some machines and offers some insurance products. Right. I mean, this is so. This is this has taken for a, a long time. I mean, this is, you know, there was under Jack Welch, the CEO in the 1990s, up to Jeff Immelt in in 2001. Even Immelt, before he was kind of turfed out, was trying to reduce the balance sheet, uh, the, the the financial balance sheet of the company. Now you're coming back to an era. I mean, a bit like the the company that you know. I don't know if it's really true that Thomas Edison created it, but you know it was built around this idea that of light bulbs, as you say in your piece. But what uh, you know is Larry Culp, the CEO, is is he getting kudos for this? Is he doing? Is it is he moving fast enough? What's the sort of view on his management? 
So the whole process has been really quite agonizing. Of course, it's taken a really long time to unwind this and it's going to take a long time more. So even though that he's you know, getting this stuff, the aircraft leasing off his books, they're still going to own this, these shares worth about $6 billion in the company, which they'll sell down only slowly. So these things take a really long time. Now, what is good about Culp is that he's brought a kind of outsider's perspective and he's hired lots of outsiders to do important jobs like run the aviation business. He's changed the auditor at GE, which they'd had the same auditor for more than a century. So he is he is doing stuff. He's got a bit of a problem with corporate jargon. He sometimes comes out with phrases about <laughs> redefining winning and stuff, which is a bit kind of old G. That's the kind of jargony, you know, culture heavy G that we actually want to kind of get away from. But to his credit, he's doing what he can with what he has. And the company is, the share price is slowly picking up. GE's lost about you know, something like $500 billion worth of market value over the years in the last 20 years, and it's starting to pick up again. But he he's he's incentivized, isn't he, to get this thing going? I mean, what was, I think you've written about his, uh, some of the stuff he's, he's in line to make if he gets the share price up to a certain point. Yeah, so he, so in one of the less um, flattering moments, what they, they did was tweak the uh, compensation that they'd given Culp um, so that if he hits a certain share price, um, then he gets a big bonus. And, they, and because the shares have no chance of hitting the price that he was supposed to hit, they reduced the price. That was partly because of COVID. They said, oh, you know, it's, it's unrealistic to hold him to the little target. Mm-hmm. The fact is that he's now very incentivized to get the share price up. Um, and he can get two, about $230 million if he gets the share price up to about $16.68. Now, looking at it where we are today, wow. about 13 and a half. Yeah. So yeah, he's so not he's far not away from a, a major payday. Well, right. He's got to get the share price there and he's got to keep it there for a while. But certainly, like if you believe, you know, if you're an investor and you want to see the share price go up, then his remuneration package certainly gives him an incentive to give you what you want. Why doesn't he just do a reverse stock split and get the price up? Ha <laughs> ha. Well, as it happened. Yeah. So that's the other thing. He's doing. It's interesting because G's done lots of stock splits over the years where they turn like, you know, one share into two or one share into three. Now they're doing the opposite because their share price is so tiny in absolute terms. So they're doing an eight for one stock split and the share price will go in theory back up to over $110, which is actually also the price at which the shares first traded in 1892. Is that right? Okay, so this is a this is sort of a back to the future, but, uh, you know, only in a sort of superficial way. Yeah. All right. Well, th- so what's the next step for, for Culp and for GE? I mean, how does he get to 16? You got any ideas? Well, so he's got a, COVID going away will help because then the plane, the jet engine business that he runs will will um, will improve. The other thing he could really do is to sort out what to do with that insurance business. They've got to pay lots of old people the cost of their care, which was a really stupid decision to get into that business in the first place. And no one really knows what the, the financial liability is. But if they can work out a way to detach that, that would leave basically clean GE, and then people would probably love the stock a bit more. So I that's like a black hole. It's a black hole, and un- a liability that you can't put a price on. Yeah. Therefore, it just hangs over the over the company. It's a mini black hole, but it is a black hole. Yeah. Thanks for that, John. We look forward to more stories on the way to Larry Culp's uh, two hundred and fifty million dollar payout, or whatever it is. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Rob. It's Yuna Galani here, and I'm dialing in from Mumbai in India. And I'm joined by my colleague Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong. This week, the world celebrated International Women's Day, and we took the opportunity to think about how work life might change in the post-pandemic new normal, especially for women. Hi, Katrina. Hi. So tell me, 
what are we and the royal we here what are we as employees expecting to change so employees are thinking that they're going to be spending about one in four days in the home office which compares with about one in 20 before the pandemic according to a, a series of surveys i saw from the us and like within the the group of employees there's a little bit of a difference between what men and women are thinking apparently about a third of women think that they could work from home all of the time whereas the figure for men is about a fifth that's based on a survey by pew research so more time in the home office definitely maybe even more time if you're a female employee and you, you get the option to choose wow that's really stark i mean i guess to some extent it sort of fits with what companies have been saying you know i think employers like big employers like tata consultancy you know it's this it services company in india but it has like half a million employees around the world i think they have said that they expect staff will spend about 25% of their time in the office and the rest at home. I guess there are lots of benefits here. You know, companies can save on rent. There's potentially on transport costs too. I mean, benefits, right? But uh, how do we quantify some of that? Yeah, I think that's been really difficult because companies were thrown into the situation. You know, I, I remember we went home and then we were told to come back on Monday. So it's it's not being well planned or well observed sometimes just because of the situation. But I did manage to find a study from about 10 years ago where Trip.com, which is a Chinese travel agency, actually set out to try and figure out if this was a good thing or not. And they found lots of good things. There were increases in productivity and retention. They also found quite a lot of negatives as the study dragged on. And I think we're at a point in, in this kind of real life experiment where that is really helpful and instructive for a lot of employers and employees what they found so, was mm. yes yeah, so, so like walk us through it like what like they had what what did they do they just let their and this is like a what like a decade ago right so like they let their employees work from home all the time they let 249 employees work from home all the time and other employees were back at the office and then they monitored both groups very carefully and figured out that it, this led to more than 10% increase in productivity and, and also improvements in retention. But they also found that the guys and girls that stayed at home were less likely to be promoted in the long run. And this this was through no fault of their own. They did also look at performance and it wasn't that those guys were you know, doing much, much worse than their peers. It seemed to be more that they were sort of out of sight and out of mind. And the, the company or the managers just didn't have the, the systems or, you know, the awareness to, to realise this was happening until it, it was actually, you know, be becoming a if not an issue, then, then certainly a divide. And ultimately what happened was the company thought this was quite successful because of the improvements in productivity. They gave a lot of people, the, the whole company, the option of working from home. And many of them didn't want to take it because they were really worried about this, this risk that they would miss out on a promotion. So I think that, that, that sort of teaches us two things, right? One is that there is this sort of out of sight, out of mind problem. And, and that applies to lots of things, not just promotion, company culture and so on. But also it's a reminder, I think, that we've not been doing this for very long. And so we've seen kind of near term benefits and negatives, but we haven't really seen how it plays out in the long run yet. And there could be a lot more things to think about beyond, um, you know, what's in our face every day when we sit in the home office with <laughs> chaos around us. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess you I guess that's really relevant now because we're sort of especially as we're thinking about this and if we do think that, you know, how will the how, what parts of the work from home experiment will stick and if there is actually going to be more women who are more likely to avail of that sort of flexibility and employers, I think, are, the, are kind of falling over themselves to try and be flexible now and to be enlightened about it. But we but but we now have to consider what those long term implications are. I mean, what can an employer do to manage that potential negative bias? Well, some of it is just kind of best practice, right? Like you want to look really closely at goals and whether or not they were achieved and try and be quite blinkered in making sure that you're attentive to that and, and not just presenteeism and whether someone's at their desk. But there are other things you can do. I and mean, trip itself, they, they didn't keep this going on a sort of larger scale, but they continued to give employees the option of working from home. They allowed them to appeal decisions that they thought were not quite right when it came to performance and pay. Another thing you can do, and you see this already coming up in lots of the discussions by um, the, the bank CEOs and so on we mentioned earlier, is capping time at the home office. Uh, and Nicholas Bloom, uh, the Stanford academic who was involved in that C-trip study, he had another idea which was not capping time at the home office, but mandating time at the home office so that you get a little bit more kind of parity uh, across your group of employees. And that would help mask some of these impacts or, or maybe kind of yeah, bring a degree of, of fairness to the way things play out. I mean, I think those are all great measures to sort of like avoid, I think, what you fantastically called this diversity disaster like that is uh, pending from the sort of home office. But I think it also, you know, it could also, I mean, I think by forcing men to spend more time working from home, I mean, there's got to be some benefits from that too, right? can imagine more of them doing the school run and, and that sort of maybe more and more of like an egalitarian sort of work-life balance, sort of work parenting balance sort of creeping in somehow. Yeah, I mean, I would hope so. I, I think these things can go both ways. What we saw in 2020 was that even though everyone was at home more of the time, actually women were still taking on quite a lot of unpaid work, much more than, than the men. But if we are mindful of these different uh, potential problems and, and trying to manage them, then I think it could work out better and we could avoid the diversity disaster, which is Nicholas Bloom's term, by the way. He's continued to monitor um, all of these things in light of his experience. And, and this is um, this is his concern that, you know, it will get out of control if it's not monitored and measured and analysed. <laughs> which Well, we, we love monitoring, measuring and analysing. Mm -hmm. And I am also now concerned about the diversity disaster that looms from our home working experiment. But I think we can sort of probably stop there. And I, I think we'll be revisiting this subject sooner rather than later. Probably now my bias is to do that from the office. But Trina, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Hina. That's our show for the week. Thanks to our producer, Freddie Joyner in New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Thank you.